Would you pray with me once more as we begin this lesson? Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for all that you've given to us, for so many blessings. Most of all, for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. As we think about where we live in this nation, we celebrate the Thanksgiving time, we think back over the centuries to people who came here seeking to worship you. And over the, over the time, people have continued to seek you and you've blessed us. And it's really rare in history for what we've experienced and what we are blessed with now. But Lord, I pray that we would not lose focus of what's really important. That if times do come when we suffer tribulation and are killed for your sake or our property is taken or we suffer as Christ suffered, that we would still see what's really important. And we thank you for saving our souls. And we, I ask that you would help us to be mindful of that above all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, over the times that I've had to speak with in front of you, I've gone to John a few times, and we're going to go there again, John chapter 2. The first 18 verses of John's gospel are a, are a prologue, and in that prologue, prologue John outlines some some things that he wants us to see, and he's just going to keep hitting those points over and over and over again as he goes through the rest of the book. In verse 10, within that prologue, John chapter 1, verse 10, he says, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the world did not then, does not now perceive who Jesus is. Did not know why Jesus came to earth. Verse 11 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So those closest to him did not receive him. They didn't really understand. They didn't perceive their need. There's a song, the title of the song is, Mary, Did You Know? Ask the question of Mary, did you know who Jesus is? So the question then is posed to us tonight, if we really know who Jesus is, do we know the real meaning, do we know our real need we know why Jesus came to earth, and that's what John is answering in his gospel. So we're going to look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We'll go back to the beginning of that chapter. I'll read those verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, 
And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So to get the, the picture again here, this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John says on the third day, so it's the third day since he started calling disciples, and he's up in Cana of Galilee, and he's invited to this wedding. So that's where we're at. So if you're like me, when, when you're reading this story, you immediately notice how Jesus speaks to his mother. And John lets us know all throughout this that this is his mother. He says it three or four times. This is Jesus' mother. But we don't see Jesus address her that way. The wine runs dry, and this is a very big deal. It's a wedding feast, and it could go on for days or a week, and the wine should, it was expected that it would outlast the celebration. So it would be a, a major problem for the wine to run out. And, and it affects Mary somehow. She, maybe she knows the people. Maybe she just has some compassion. But she wants to, to fix this problem. So she has the solution. It's her son. So she says to Jesus, they have no wine. And it's really implicit in that statement is, is a, a request, if not an outright expectation, that Jesus is going to fix this problem. And Jesus answers, woman. So as I said, there's a word for mother. John uses it. We see that over and over, but Jesus doesn't use that word. He just says, woman. And we see that contrast. That's why that pops out at us so easily. And when I see that, I, I certainly don't get a sense of endearment from reading those words. And it's, it's kind of shocking. Like, it's a family dispute or something that it's uncomfortable. And so we know that Jesus wouldn't be unloving or disrespectful, but this reply, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, is not how a son would speak to his mother. And the question is, if Jesus isn't unloving or disrespectful or sinful, then why is he speaking this way? I've read some sources, some commentaries, and, and a lot of them try to soften it, make it into something like dear woman. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think it's supposed to be a contrast that we can see and that Mary can see and that Jesus is trying to teach something, trying to make a point. So in answering this question, why, why does Jesus speak this way, I think we can should dig into Mary's mind. There's a bulletin insert that was in the bulletin. If you're following along with that, this would be the first point there. Consider that Mary missed it. Consider that Mary missed it. So what's in her mind when she says they have no wine? There's this real physical issue. There's a big problem here. It needs to be fixed, and she has the way to solve it. Maybe it makes her proud that her son can do this. It will reflect well on her that her son has fixed the, fixed the problem or, or that she has found the solution. Whatever the possibilities are, there's an expectation here that Jesus is going to fix the problem for her. So what's some evidence from the Gospels that might help us understand what's going through Mary's mind? Consider Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, Jesus has gone back to his hometown and he's in Nazareth, he's speaking in the synagogue and all the people who are gathered there, they're, they're listening to him deliver the word of God and they're not really listening to him. They're talking to each other, and they're saying, isn't this Mary's son? 
We know who his brothers and sisters are. He grew up here. He's one of us. He used to play down in the streets with his brothers and sisters and work down at the carpenter shop. Who is this guy talking to us like this? And they're not really giving him any respect. He's just become too familiar to them. Verse 4 of Mark chapter 6, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and own household. So they got too familiar. They didn't see who Jesus was and what they needed. Verse 2 of Mark chapter 6, they even acknowledge that he does miracles. How are such mighty works done by his hands, they would say. But in verse 5, it says Jesus didn't do any miracles there because of their unbelief. Last week we talked about John, or last time I spoke, we talked about John chapter 7, where his brothers had the same kind of feeling, that they saw the mighty works that he would do, but they didn't believe. They wanted the glory those miracles could bring to them. This may be what's happening with Mary. We won't look at Luke chapter 2, but in Luke chapter 2, she doesn't understand why Jesus is in the temple at the feet of the teachers. He's 12 years old. And she, when she finds him there and she scolds him, Jesus answers to her, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? So Mary doesn't understand who this man is. And implicit in what Jesus is saying to her in this event at the wedding is, I'm not merely your son. I'm not here to do your will. I'm not here to fulfill what it is that might glorify you. Matthew chapter 12, his mother and his brothers are trying to get through a crowd. Jesus is teaching a crowd, and a man nearby to Jesus says, Your family's here. They would like to speak to you. And Jesus says to that man, Those who do my father's will are my family and my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Mark chapter 3, Jesus has returned to his hometown again, large crowds following him. And verse 21 says that his family came out to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. He's acting like he came here to save souls. He has all this power. Shouldn't he be using it for something more useful? Luke chapter 11, a woman cried out from a crowd that he was teaching, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus says to her, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So back in John chapter 2, verse 11, Consider that after the miracle was done, it says his disciples believed in him. It doesn't say anything about his family. His mother, his brothers, his disciples, it says they all went to Capernaum together, but the only mention of belief is the disciples. So Mary and Jesus' brothers, they, they know he can do miracles. Maybe at some level they know he's the son of God, but it's not recorded as belief. So we said in John chapter 7, it's actually recorded as unbelief. They see Jesus as one of their own, a son, a brother. And though he has power, they want to be connected to it for the sake of how it can glorify them. Mary wants to save the day. Maybe she wants to show what her son can do, but it's merely use of that power in ultimately meaningless ways that make life more comfortable and easy. She should have known better, and he offers a rebuke because her attitude is wrong, and his love wants to put her in the proper understanding. So she replies, do whatever he says. Now, one of my Bibles has a note that this is the spiritual discernment of Mary. And maybe that's true, but I think considering some of the evidence that Mary actually maybe has not spiritually discerned, maybe that reply is exasperation. In any case, 
I think Mary missed it, and she doesn't understand who Jesus really is and what she needed from him. But Mary's not the only one who missed it in this story. There's some others, if you're taking notes in that bulletin outline. The master of the feast missed it. The bridegroom missed it. The guests at the wedding feast missed it. And the servants missed it. The master of the feast didn't even know where the wine came from. It's completely confused as to why the bridegroom would save this good wine until the last. He says, or the custom of the day was to serve the good wine first, and then when the guests had drunk freely, it says, which literally means when they had become drunk. That's when you would bring out the lower quality wine. He's confused. Why is this here? The bridegroom missed it. The bridegroom's called over. We don't see that he has any idea where it came from. He maybe didn't even know there was a problem. The guests at the wedding feast missed it. They were drunk and probably couldn't even tell they were tasting the best wine they would ever get. And the servants missed it. And this one, John, is very careful to point out. John very carefully points out the servants missed what was really going on. They'd obediently filled the jars. They drew some water out, as Jesus told them to do. They carried it to the master of the feast. And it's at this point that John makes sure that we know that they knew where it came from. The master of the feast exclaims about it, but they don't say a single word. They've just seen a man turn water into wine. They've seen another man who would know good wine when he tasted it, confirm its quality, and yet not a single word about the mighty work or the man who performed it. So what should all these people have seen? Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Mary should have seen her Savior who was here to die and not here to glorify her or fulfill her desires of the flesh. When Jesus speaks of his hour, he's speaking of that time when he will be glorified in death, sacrificial, obedient death, a, draw, a death that draws all men to the Father. That hour was the point at which God's wrath on the world would be satisfied when we would receive justification. Mary saw in Jesus a way of solving temporary earthly problems and missed the need for a solution of an eternal problem with her soul. She saw a way of solving temporary earthly problems and missed the need for a solution of an eternal problem with her soul. Jesus had those servants fill six stone water jars to the brim, large jars used for the Jewish traditions of purification, for washing pots and pans and hands. And Jesus turned all of that water into wine. All that water used for purification, he turned it into wine. A spiritually discerning audience would read that sign and understand, just like John the Baptist who exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, John understood that as Jesus walked by, he was watching heaven's perfect Lamb. He understood this Lamb would be slaughtered and spill blood that purified the world. The spiritually discerning audience sees that Jesus is filling those jars with the emblem of his blood that purifies the world. The master of the feast merely tastes great wine. The guests don't even know they've been blessed. Believing in Jesus, receiving Jesus, is recognizing Jesus' glory as the soul purifier. That's what believing in Jesus is. Receiving Jesus is recognizing his glory as the soul purifier. Jesus is the provider for spiritual needs. He's there. He's blessing us. We see how he's blessed this land and how he blesses us now. 
He's blessing the people of this world in so many unnoticed ways, providing wine at the feast so that those who do see will believe and tell others. So the challenge then to us is to find ourselves among the people at this event. The challenge is to apply this to the way you live and the way you view Jesus. I think about the way that we pray and what we ask for from Jesus. It's so often health and wealth and physical blessings. But for those who've been born again, do we really understand the depth of the blessing we've already received? Infinite depth of blessing that we've already received. I wonder if we recognize the destiny of our soul compared to the comforts we desire that God or expect that God would grant to us. Perhaps we find ourselves among the servants who witnessed this great power, even participating in it, and yet they said nothing. We have a joy, we have a hope. It should be seen in our lives, but if somebody notices it, do we stay silent instead of speaking out? Sometimes I wonder if I even believe when I act like those servants. Especially in our nation, there's a whole population in the position of the guests. We are living under the the light of Christ, the blessings of Christ. It's unrecognized, but when those godly principles are espoused, we're blessed. When Christians have an influence in the world, it's a better place. The nation embraces hard work. When a government respects good and punishes evil, When citizens personally care for one another, hospitals are built, education is espoused so that we can use our brains to uncover the truth of God's word. People pay taxes, render to Caesar so that police and fire and military services are available to protect us from calamity and evil. And there's a recognition that all men are equal before God. When when all of these things and so much more is present in a society, it is the blessing and the light of Christ. God is faithful to provide those blessings even when he's unrecognized. Even worse, when those blessings are attributed to false gods or like self-determination or other spiritual forces. When the light of Christ is unrecognized, those blessings are squandered in meaningless ways. If the whole world lives in moral goodness and prosperity without recognizing the soul's need for Christ, it all ends and condemnation. The blessings of that wealth are spent passing time on this earth with entertainment and cares of this world, along with millions and millions of others who can't give a single thought to Christ. Because we're intoxicated with all the distractions that can blind us to our true need. There's places in the world where physical poverty is, is overwhelming, but the gospel is exploding. People in those areas, they have barely enough to survive a single day when it comes to food. They have bread maybe just for that day, but they don't have anything to distract them from their true need for Jesus to save their souls. So, I encourage you, if you have already come to Jesus for your soul's true need, but you're in a trial, never cease looking to him knowing that he has saved you and made you a child of God. If you're a child of God and you have become intoxicated by indulging desires of self-glory and worry or desires for entertainment, if you have become, begun to view Jesus as a way to fulfill your desires and maximize your comfort in this life, then regain the proper perspective. 
Be a witness to the power of God that is able to make you stand as justified and purified in the judgment. Maybe you've never spiritually discerned any of this. Maybe he's familiar like he was to, to Mary and his brothers, but knowing everything about Jesus, having the closest family connection to Jesus is not sufficient. You could walk away from that as unbelieving as one of those drunk guests at the wedding. We're all craving satisfaction for our soul. We're asking, is there more than this? Attempting to fill that desire with the wine that this world provides will leave us waking each morning with the same craving headache. Adhering to religious rites doesn't fulfill the need. A great marriage doesn't fill the need. Having great children doesn't fill the need. Chasing fulfillment in a career doesn't fill the need. Engaging in every sin you can imagine doesn't satisfy the need. Recognizing Jesus as king as Savior, as the only one who can purify the soul, is what fills the need. There's a man named John Bunyan. Perhaps you've heard of him as a writer from back in old England. In his autobiographical book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he writes how his mind was tortured with guilt over his wickedness. And he writes this. It scared him to see people, he says, who, when under the wounds of conscience, would cry and pray, seeking ease from their current trouble rather than purification of their souls. They didn't care how they lost their guilt just so long as they got it out of their mind. The only way to be pure is to be washed in the blood of Christ. Romans 6 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when you're connected by faith in God to the death of Christ, then the wine of his blood purifies your soul. So if you have any need or need any prayers, we'd like to meet those now as we stand and sing.